Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark again. There's a lot of talk these days about the gospel. People talk about, wish we could get back to the pure gospel, or the old gospel, or the simple gospel, or the renewed gospel, all those different things. And people often talk about and discuss about whether or not this church, or this person, or that preacher preaches a pure gospel message. I love the fact that when Mark brings and and explains the Lord Jesus to us in his book, he begins in the very first words that are recorded out of Jesus' mouth in the book of the book of Mark is the fact of his preaching the gospel message. And so the title of the message this morning is simply this, Jesus came preaching the gospel. I think it's a tremendous uh, place to start with his ministry. Main point this morning is this, Jesus is the son of God, the king of kings, ruling and reigning with power and authority as partakers in his kingdom. We must submit to his authority in repentance and in faith and in following him. That's the point, all right? Well, just to, just to get started, let's read together, shall we, from Mark chapter 1 and verse number 9, and we're going to read all the way to verse 45, the end of the chapter, the whole long section. So beginning at verse 9 of chapter 1, the book of Mark, it says this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he was going along by the sea of Galilee and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. 
When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew, they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into the synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and, was, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Let's ask for God's blessing, shall we? Father, this morning as we open your word together, we pray, O God, that the Spirit of God would teach us and lead us into all truth. And Father, we would pray with the Old Testament psalmist who prayed in Psalm 119, Revive me. According to your word. Father, we pray this morning that you would revive us according to your word. You would strengthen us to be able to carry out and do what your word calls us to do. Father, we thank you for the Spirit of God that inspired Mark to record the story. And Father, we thank you that he speaks through Mark's pen to our hearts. And Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would have freedom to instruct us and teach us. And Father, we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little bit of a background introduction for you. In verse 14 there, he says, Now after John had been delivered up. Now I want you to notice that between verse 13 and verse 14, what you don't pick up from the text is that there is actually about a year, maybe even as long as a year and a half time gap between his temptation in Jordan and then his coming into Galilee. If you go to the book of Luke, you find there in, the, in chapter 4 it is that Luke fills in some of the background details of what's going on in Jesus' life. If you go to the book of John, he fills in even more details. And what's key in the book of Luke and John is you see that some of these men mentioned in the text this morning, they're already familiar with Jesus. They've already met him on the way. Simon Peter is a particularly key example. He, Jesus met him on a boat, and while he's preaching the gospel, Simon Peter Peter's there before him, and Jesus turns and tells him, put your nets over on the other side. Oh, let's, sorry, let out into the deep for a catch. And John, or Peter, agrees to do it, and he puts his nets down, but he starts to complain, saying, you know, we've worked all night, and how are we going to catch anything? And Jesus tells him to do it, and he pulls up the nets, and there's so many fish in the net, and he gets them all on the boat, and then Peter turns and falls on his knees before Jesus and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. These disciples had already met Jesus, and he was somewhat familiar with them. 
Notice also that he says there, now after John had been taken into custody, if you have an NASB like I do, you should have a little marginal note that says, or delivered up, or you might have the words handed over in your Bible there. It's kind of key because when you go to the end of the book of Mark and you see where Jesus begins to speak about his coming death and being handed over to the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees and so on, he uses the very same phrase, And what's also neat about it is John the Baptist who has come preparing Jesus' way and preaching the gospel and baptizing and preparing for Jesus' coming. His demise, his ending is in the very same way. He is handed over to the authorities and his life is taken from him. He prepares for Jesus in every different way possible. Notice also he says Jesus came into Galilee Now, Matthew 4 and verse 12, you have the parallel account, but it says Jesus withdrew into Galilee. In Luke 4 and verse 14, he says that Jesus returned to Galilee. And the timing given for us, the context of Jesus coming and beginning his public ministry when John had been taken to custody kind of gives us a key as to why. Some people have speculated, and it's a stupid speculation, I'll tell you right off the bat, that the reason why he withdrew to Galilee was because he was perhaps afraid of Herod. Well, that's ridiculous. Why would the Lord Jesus be afraid of Herod? And more, more than that, just a simple fact of the case, Herod had authority over the whole region, including Galilee and Judea. So Jesus leaving and going back to Galilee makes no sense at all from that argument, so we just dismiss that completely. But the question comes up, Why did Jesus come from Nazareth, go all the way down to the Jordan, be baptized, go through his temptation in the little wilderness area that's kind of to the north and slide to the west of the Jordan? Why did he go through that and then go all the way back to Galilee to minister? If you stop and think about it, Jerusalem's where everybody is, everybody who is somebody. The Pharisees gather, they're taught, and they teach in Jerusalem. The scribes and the high priests and all the priests and the Herodians, they're all in and around that Jerusalem area in Judea. Why would Jesus not minister there? And I think it's absolutely cool because I think what it is is he's, Jesus is showing us something that's so cool that Paul picks up in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, what does Paul say? Jesus came and he chose not many wise, not many noble, and not many mighty. Galilee was kind of the Pakenham of of Judea. It was the backwoods. It was, I can say that because I come from Pakenham. It's okay. It's, it's, It's like Horsham, right? I mean, it's just way out there in the middle of nowhere. There's not much around. And you say, why would Jesus go back there to minister? And the very beautiful thing is that Jesus goes back to that place to minister and he selects and he brings his disciples. He ministers amongst a bunch of people who are literally the nobodies and the look down upons of their day. And you know what's even more cool about that? When those disciples, that ragtag bunch of nobodies that Jesus picked to be his followers and they're standing before the high priest and the scribes after Jesus has gone back to heaven and the scribes and the high priest and the Pharisees are kind of looking at these men and they're Galileans and they're unlearned but you know what's remarkable about them? They recognize them as having been with Jesus. And Jesus goes and ministers to the nobodies of the world in order that by choosing those who are not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, the things that are not, Paul says, 
to shame and bring to nothing the things that are. And Jesus goes to Galilee to do his ministry. By the way, uh, Jesus' public ministry can be divided into basically two parts. From chapter 1 and verse 14, Jesus coming into Galilee, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, all the way up to 8 and verse 31, when Jesus asks a very key question. As you read through the book of Mark, I hope you're reading through the book of Mark repeatedly while we're going through this, because it'll really help you get the full uh, message of Mark. One of the key things that comes up is something called the secret gospel. It's you have an idea out there. And you see... Who is this? Who is this who can commands the demons to come out? Who is this that can heal sicknesses? Who is this that can still the waters of the Sea of Galilee? And Jesus finally turns to his disciples in 831 and says, Who do you say that who, who do the men say that I am? And they say, Well, some say you're Elijah, some say a prophet, some say a good man, and so on. And then Jesus asks a very, very important question. He looks at his disciples and says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks for the whole group and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he finishes that public ministry. And all his time from chapter 1, verse 14, all the way to 8 and verse 31 is his public ministry. And it's all up to the north of the country in Galilee and Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee and that area there. And when he finishes that statement, he kind of withdraws from reaching out to people. Not entirely, but mostly. And as he works his way down towards Jerusalem, he keeps telling the disciples again and again and again, listen, the Son of Man is going to be handed it over to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and they will, uh, they, will, they will mistreat him and he will suffer many things and he will die but then he will be raised again. He tells them that three times before he actually hits Jerusalem. So Jesus coming into Galilee marks the beginning of his public ministry and he reaches out to those who were nothing in order to shame those who were, thought they were something. All right. Notice also, moving on from there, He came preaching the gospel in verse 14 of chapter 1. And I think that's an amazing statement. It's actually the grace of God. One of the beautiful patterns that happens in Scripture is you read through the Bible from Genesis to the maps, you're going to find this pattern. Grace comes before judgment over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel sin against God. What does God often do? He sends a prophet to preach the gospel, to preach the Bible to them before he brings in a deliverer to rescue them from their enemies. And what's happening here? Jesus, the great prophet of God, comes preaching the gospel before he comes to do his work as both the deliverer, the redeemer, and also before he comes again as the king judging all of his subjects. Okay, so he came preaching the gospel. Now, we have in verse 15 and 16 and 17 there the content of Jesus' gospel, and there are five elements. We probably won't go through all five of them, but we're going to just get started and kind of enjoy our way through it. Five elements there. Notice number one, he says, the time is fulfilled in verse number 14, or 15, sorry. In verse 15 also, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the second element. The thirdly, he says, repent. Fourthly, he says, believe in the gospel. And fifthly, he says in verse number 17, follow me. 
Now, some of you who are good Bible students will look down and say, hey, well, now, wait a minute. There, you jumped over a paragraph to get those five in there. Uh, surely he was preaching repentant belief to some people, but he's talking about follow me just to his disciples. And I think, yes, you're right, but I think Mark put them so close together. And when you realize what they're all saying and you realize the full content of what believe means, you have to include follow me. It is an indistinct an inseparable part of the gospel. When we call people, when we preach the gospel, we do not call people just to simply believe and be saved and carry on living just the way they used to. We preach the gospel and we call people to stop living the way they are and to live now for God. But I want to work our way through this and just kind of enjoy it and learn from Jesus' preaching of the gospel message. First of all, he says in 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled. And I was mentioning this back in communion about the Old Testament and how all the promises of the Old Testament are always anticipating and always expecting a king to come, a savior to come. There's always a looking forward. Uh, Abraham's, sorry, Isaac's question to Abraham and Abraham's promise to Isaac is so key. It kind of hangs over the whole Old Testament like a big theme question or theme statement. Where is the lamb? And what does Abraham say? God himself will provide the lamb. And the story of Abraham, it was a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. But over the whole message of the Old Testament, it's Jesus Christ that God will provide as the lamb of God for sinners. But what Jesus is saying when he arrives and says, the time is fulfilled, he's saying, listen, the waiting is over. Who here likes the three days before Christmas? <laughs> Rebecca, no. If you're a little kid, or if you're an older kid or whatever kid you are, no matter how old you are, nobody likes the last three days before Christmas because up until then, you know, you've got lots of time to do your shopping and so on. But if you're a little kid... I shouldn't say little. If you're a young person, a young at heart, you're looking forward to the moment when the, the dawn breaks on Christmas Day and you can dive out of bed at 400, 4 o'clock in the morning and run into your parents' bedroom and they're so appreciative as you wake them up and you go and you open your presents together and you can say, hey, listen, the time is fulfilled, mom and dad. Let's go open presents. And what Jesus is saying to them is, listen, the, the waiting is over. The anticipation, the expectation of all these years of looking for the Lamb, of looking for a Savior, they're waiting, they're over. I'm here. Now, if you understand a little bit about the history between the two Testaments and all the things that happened as the Jerusalem and the the Jews went from uh, underneath the boot of Babylon, underneath the boot of the Persians, underneath the boots of the Greeks, and finally under the boot of the Romans. And you realize in that writing there's a rise of something called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is always looking for a king to come and set them free. At the end of the Gospels, Jesus and the disciples out there, and before he goes back to heaven, what do they ask him? Will you at this time restore the kingdom? They're still looking for a kingdom. They're still looking for an earthly reign. In a sense, we all look forward to the fact that Jesus was coming again and he will establish a reign on earth. But for them, it was so much more near the surface of all their thinking. They were longing for a king to come to set them free from Rome, to set them free from all their oppressors. And the reality is the king came and he set them free from the one thing that nobody else in all of existence could set them free from. He set them free from sin. But he says, listen, 
The time is fulfilled. Listen, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to believe. And now is the time to follow. Listen, young people. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't know what it means to turn and absolutely, totally commit your life to Jesus Christ, I encourage you with all my heart, the time is fulfilled. Now is the time. You think, you know what? I'm young. Look at you, Nelson. You're old. You're 46. You got more gray than you had three years ago. I got years to live before I hit 46. I had a friend who, who thought that too. And one day he got on his motorcycle and he drove home from work and he wasn't bothering anybody. He wasn't speeding. He wasn't driving like an idiot. We used to call him Potsy. He was kind of a goofy kid. He was driving on the road and a taxi cab came out of a side street and he was killed. And I guarantee you, Potsy didn't get on his motorbike that day and think, today is the day my life will be over. And the reality is, you do not know the day of your death. Young people, listen. Today is the day to turn around and leave everything behind. I'm jumping ahead, I know, but leave everything behind and to follow Christ, to put it all away and live 100% for Jesus Christ. I should have thrown that in there. Notice, secondly, the second element of the gospel. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. You might have in your Bible, the kingdom of God has come near, or the kingdom of God is near to you, something like that. Literally, in the Greek, as I understand it, it means that the phrase is more like um, has come near the kingdom of God. And the emphasis, the way Greek language works, is they put the emphatic part of the word. We emphasize by putting some emphasis on the word, right? That's how we do it. What they did was they put the word at the beginning of the sentence. If they want to emphasize something, they put the word very first so you'd know this is the most important word of the sentence. It comes first. And they put come near or has come near as the beginning of the sentence. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, the kingdom of God has always been, but now the kingdom of God has come near to them. And you say, now what is the kingdom of God and what is the kingdom of heaven? And we have talked in KC Bible Church a number of times what the kingdom is. And some of you may have seen in different gospels, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, they're the same thing. They're just the two phrases for the same actual kingdom. I knew some men years ago that tried to find two different kingdoms. It doesn't work. It's just There's just one kingdom with one king. And wherever God is, that's where his kingdom is ruling and reigning. And so when Jesus says the kingdom, the kingdom of God has come near to you, what he's saying is, listen, I am the king and I come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near. The time is fulfilled. He tells them how it is they're going to enter the kingdom by repenting and believing. But there's some really neat stuff about the kingdom we need to look at that's actually presented in Mark's gospel. The kingdom of God has three basic ideas behind it. I love theological terms and ideas in scripture. Most of them are Trinitarian. They have three things about which you can say about that concept. And the kingdom of God is one like that. The kingdom of God, in order to have a kingdom, what do you got to have? You got to have a king who has power and authority and legitimacy to reign. You've got to have an exercise of that king's reign and then you've got to have a realm over which the king rules and reigns, right? He's got, he, a king without no kingdom is just a guy with big ideas. But not like this. Another thing to notice is really key is that in man's world, the kingdom creates the king. What's going to happen in, say, 10 years' time when Queen Elizabeth finally dies? 
they'll say in the newspapers, the queen is dead, long live the king, right? Is he actually the king at that moment? Well, he's the rightful king, but he's not actually king yet. He has to be crown king, right? And all the nation, some of you probably were old enough to watch the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Yep, a couple of you were. And I didn't, I just, I've seen pictures and film footage of it. And that great moment where the archbishop or the arch whatever he is of Canterbury takes the crown and he puts it on her head and, he, and the, the trumpets blow and everybody shouts and she is now the crowned queen of England. In day to come, Charles will sit on that same throne and he'll hold the orb in one hand and the scepter in the other and all the robes and all the regalia and splendor of being the king of England, which is absolutely nothing compared to God's glory and God's splendor. And they will place the crown on his head and the kingdom will create the king. Not so with God. It's absolutely the other way around. The king creates the kingdom. See, God is always king in his kingdom. He has never been dethroned. He never was ascending to the throne. He has always been enthroned. Okay? Another thing that's really cool, and you've got to kind of pick this up. Just put this in your Bible somewhere on note. That we are not subjects of the kingdom. We're partakers of the kingdom. There's a difference. We are kings and priests to our God. We were singing about that. We saw it in Revelation earlier this morning. We are kings and priests, which means what? When Jesus is the king of kings, he is the king over all of us who are invited to participate in his rule and his reign. And one of the hopes that we have as Christians is one day we're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ as kings with him on his throne. But I want to go back and I want to look at those three things there. The king legitimate with power and authority is the first one. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, what do we have there? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark presents right away that he is a legitimate king on his father's throne. What does his father do? I think it's really cool that Jesus goes down to the waters of baptism and identifies with sinners. And as he comes up out of the waters of baptism, his father identifies with him and he says, You are my beloved son. In you I delight or in you I approve. And what he's saying is, listen, this is my son. There is a connection here. He is a legitimate son of God. He's not some guy with big ideas coming out of a carpenter shop claiming to be somebody that he wasn't. You think that never happened. It actually records in the Bible some guy named Judas, who was a nutcase, took a whole bunch of people out into the wilderness, and the Romans came in and slaughtered them all. He thought he was the Messiah. Other men came at the same time and did the same kind of thing. But Jesus was the one that the Father in heaven put his delight and his approval on. He is the legitimate king. Not only that, and here's, this is so cool, I was just enjoying this all week. As well as vacationing too, but you know, I was enjoying this too. He is the king with power and authority. A king has to have power and authority. In Matthew 1, Mark 1 and verse 13, Jesus has power and authority to defeat his enemy. What's he do? He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we often have this idea that he goes in and he, and he slugs it out. And he comes out with battered and bruised and almost doesn't make it out. No, not that way at all. Jesus goes into the wilderness as a conquering, victorious king. And he defeats his enemy. And at the end of the gospel, he crushes his enemy's head. That's amazing. That's beautiful. He has power and authority to defeat his enemy. In verse 21, Jesus has power and authority to teach the scriptures. Isn't that cool? 
He opened the word of God to them and he taught them. And the people were amazed for his teaching. It was with one as having authority and not as the scribes. Remember the story in the end of the book of Luke? I think it's Luke. Maybe John. Never mind. Uh, Jesus is walking on the way and there's two guys going to Emmaus. They're walking along and they're arguing, debating back and forth about all the things that have happened. And Jesus comes alongside of them and he walks along with them. What are you talking about? Have you not heard? And they tell him what happened. And Jesus stops And the Bible says that he opened to them all the things concerning himself in the Old Testament. If ever you wanted to be a fly on the wall or a fly on the shoulder of another guy, that would be it. To hear and listen to Jesus opening and explaining all the things concerning himself from the Old Testament. Jesus has power and authority to teach the scriptures, to unveil and explain the mind and the counsel of God to us. In 1 verses 23 to 26, Jesus has power and authority to cast out demons. Not only has he defeated his enemy, he has the authority to rule over the spiritual world, all of it. And he casts them out. In verse 29 to 34, Jesus has power and authority to heal sicknesses. He comes in and all the people come to him. I love the way he heals Simon's mother-in-law, right? What's he do? He comes in the house. She's got a fever. He takes her by the hand and she heals her. She gets up. My mother-in-law would love this. She gets up and immediately she goes to serve them and she's running around the house. She's so fully healed. She doesn't need a time to recover. She doesn't need some rest and relaxation. She doesn't need a couple of Panadol and a cup of tea and a cookie to kind of get over it and get her strength back. She gets right up and she goes right back to work. And my mother-in-law was the same. You couldn't keep her down. She was always getting up to serve somebody. His healing is absolutely complete. He has power and authority, not just to heal partially, but to heal completely, even more than that. Now you say, wait a minute. Just hold on a minute. Lots of people heal people. And we even know people in this world who have cast out demons. We may have heard of people who are great teachers and preachers of the Bible. Charles Haddon Spurgeon could teach the Bible unlike anybody else. He wasn't God. Well, the doctors and then they can do surgeries and heal people. They're not God. What do you mean? This is his power and authority to be the king of kings and lord of lords. Oh, but there's more. Listen to what else it says. He had power and authority in verses 40 to 45 to cleanse leprosy. I was reading through Leviticus, like I was saying before. I read through all the parts about the, the offerings and sacrifices about, you know, you get cleansed, you have to go and take a bird and some string and some scarlet piss up and all that stuff and you put it in the running water and da 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 and then they pronounce you clean. It never happened. Not once. That, if you look at all the Levitical manual, if you had it all categorized for the priest to open up and see, what do we do when we got a, a healed leprosy? They would never have opened that section to say, what do we do now? Except for Naaman, by the way, and he was not part of the people of Israel. But the priests had never had to deal with that because it had never happened. And Jesus says to that man, listen to what he says. He says, go and offer the things as a testimony to them. Jesus had power and authority to cleanse leprosy. Nobody else had that. You say, oh, you're stretching it, but okay. What else? Well, let's look a little further. In Capernaum, what did he have there? He had power and authority to heal a paralytic. Of all the most devastating injuries in the world, a spinal cord injury, there is simply no hope. They cannot put it back together. 
I love that story. They're carrying the man. They're lowering him down. And he sees their faith. And I believe he saw the faith of the paralytic guy. And he says something else that's absolutely profound. No other man, no matter where he came from, had this power and authority. He had power and authority to forgive sin. You want proof that he is the son of God, the legitimate king to sit on the king's throne. Jesus Christ had power and authority to forgive sin. I think it's marvelous the way Mark presents him to us. Yeah, he is the servant king, but the first thing he shows us is he's the son of God, the king who rules and reigns. Now, I have in my wallet a little card, a little uh, pale green card that says that Nelson Atwood is a citizen of the country of Canada. I went to Canada. I lived there for 30 years. After 27, I think it was, uh, some crazy man flew a plane into the Twin Towers of New York City, and all of a sudden my crumpled up yellow piece of paper to travel back and forth from Canada to the United States was no good. You couldn't do it in that. You needed proper paperwork. And so I went and got, I paid $200, wrote a 20-question quiz that I wrote in 19 seconds. It was so easy. And congratulations, I was now a citizen of the country of Canada. I'm also very, very, very proud to be a citizen of Australia. I was born here, my father was born here, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, and I think his father, too, was also born here. I'm proud of that. But you know what? All of those things, you can become a Canadian citizen by paying $200 and writing a 20-second, 20-question quiz. You can be born into the citizenship of Australia. But you cannot be born into the kingdom of God. You must enter the kingdom of God. That's the most profound thing. You see, the kingdom of God involves three things. Like I said, a king who has power, authority, and legitimacy to rule. Jesus proves that. A king exercising his rule and reign. All those things I just gave you, that's Jesus exercising his rule and his reign. And a kingdom also has a realm over which Jesus rules and reigns. And that's the next part of his gospel message. And he says to them, having said those things... uh, The time is fulfilled. Kingdom of God is at hand. Verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then he says later, follow me. And those three things there are the requirements, the necessities of how we enter into the kingdom of God. You cannot be born into it because your parents are in the kingdom of God. You cannot simply inherit the right to become a subject or a partaker of the kingdom of God simply because mom and dad are doesn't work that way. Every single man must enter the kingdom by his, sorry, let me say this rightly, by the grace of God, by faith in God, and repentance from sin. I'm going to unpack those three next week, but I want to say something else before I close up. Listen, you hear a gospel message preached, and you do not hear repentance. Let me tell you something. You did not hear the gospel message preached. You cannot divorce repentance from the gospel. And I went to a church not that long ago that did exactly that. And I had great debate with one of their elders. Listen, Jesus did not come simply so that you could believe something and carry on living exactly the way you used to live. The profound thing about the gospel is it radically changes you. Repentance 
and we'll get to this next week, but repentance is submission to the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the King and God. We need to change our minds about who God is. Repentance is submission to the authority of God, realizing that every time we sin, it's rebellion against the King. Repentance is also submission to God, realizing that righteous living is only possible through faith and obedience to the king. Again, it's submission to his authority. Belief. You know what belief is? Belief is um, basically three things. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. It's living confident that Jesus is going to keep his promises. Living that way. Not just believing that, just thinking that. If you've made an intellectual agreement to the gospel, you agree that all the facts of the gospel are the same and you're living exactly the way you used to live, committing the same sins with the same sinful attitudes in your heart, let me tell you something, you're not saved. You can get angry at me for saying that. How dare you challenge my salvation? I signed a card. I prayed a prayer. I made some statement to somebody. but I'm more afraid of the Lord Jesus whom I serve than I am of you getting mad at me. If there is no genuine repentance in your life, there is no salvation. It's those three put together. Repentance, belief, and following Jesus Christ. Those men put down their nets. They turned away from their father and the other men they turned away from their boats, and they followed after Jesus. We're going to unpack this next week, but it's a beautiful picture. In the Greek, and I'm, I'm no Greek scholar like Deb, but in the Greek, the word follow me is presented more like this. Um, it's this way after me. So he walks on the beach, and he sees him, and he says, this way after me. And he turns around, and he keeps walking. And the picture in the New Testament of a rabbi and his followers was always like this. The rabbi would walk out front, and he would lead the way. And they would fall into place behind him, and he would fall, they would follow on behind him. So he set the pace, he set the direction and the course, he set the way in which they were to live. They followed him. I think for a lot of us, walking with Jesus is very much our making our decisions and asking for God to, like pixie dust, bless what we think we're going to do. I'll tell you something, of all the things I've been challenged with this week, and there's been a few of them, that little phrase, follow me has challenged me probably the most. So what's the message for us this morning? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the King of kings, with power and authority to rule and reign. I want to be a part of a kingdom where the king identified himself with me by being baptized. I want to be a part of a kingdom where the king defeated my enemy, both sin and death, and the devil. I want to be part of a kingdom where the king not just defeated my enemy, not just identified with himself with all sinners, but you know what else he did? He called me to follow him, to be with him, to listen to him, to talk with him, to relate to him. And the life of a genuine believer is a life following Jesus, having a personal, intimate relationship with the king of kings. I want to be a part of that kingdom. And you say, how do you be a part of that kingdom? What do we do? Number one, we repent. Number two, we believe. And number three, we follow. And we'll unpack them next week. Would you stand with me? I want to pray. And we'll close.
Father in heaven, this morning we bow before you as we stand here in your presence. And Father, we give you thanks for the King of Kings who walked this earth. And Father, it's such a thrill to our hearts to stop and, and look in the pages of Scripture and see the authority of Jesus. And Father, the scene that just comes to my mind right now is the scene in the book of John. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the soldiers come, about 400 of them, to arrest one man. And Jesus says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says two words, three letters, I am. And the authority and the power of Jesus Christ in those words is so great that the entire group of them fell back and fell to the ground. And Father, one of the problems that we as a people in this day and age face and deal with, we must deal with, is we have far too small a view of our Savior. He is God. He is the one with power and authority. He is the king, born king, ruling as king, never stopped being king. Father, we just stand before you this morning and we would worship. We would say this morning, Father, that he is Lord. He's risen from the dead and he is Lord. We would say, O God, that he is our God and our Savior. And Father, we would say also that we love him. We love him who defeated our enemy. We love him who rules and reigns perfectly just and perfectly loving and perfectly gracious. And Father, it's our heart's desire to see a people raised up from this church who will do like those four men, leave everything behind and follow Jesus. And Father, as we stand here, I'm convinced in my heart that there's a few here this morning that do not really know you. That may have been convinced in their own hearts that they do. Father, I pray that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit that can trouble a man's soul, that you would trouble them right down to the core. That, Father, that they would turn and seek you out to search the scriptures to find you, to spend time on their knees seeking the God of heaven, crying out for salvation. Lord, that they might turn and leave everything behind and follow you. Father, we ask you for this. We ask you, Father, for blessing. Lord, we think about a few that can't be here this morning. Lord, we pray that you would encourage their hearts wherever they are. Bless them and strengthen them. Father, we began by praying and asking in the words of the psalm, revive us according to your word. And Father, we ask you again that you would revive us according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.